morning, First Peter chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 21 through 22. Again, First Peter 3, 21 and 22. And let's ask God's uh, blessing upon our time. Dear Holy Father, there are so many things that, that we would love to say, so many things that our hearts would love to communicate, and because of our lack of just imagination and understanding, many times we fall so short of the praise and glory and honor that you deserve. Even the songs we sing, as we talk about your mercy being more than our sin and all these other things, we, that fails to compare to what the depth of our sin truly is and how great your mercy really is. We will never be able to fathom this side, the glory of who you are, this side of heaven, but one day we will stand before you looking into the face of the one we love. So, dearly Father, until that day comes, may we get another taste of your truth, words that, as you said to the woman at the well, would make you never thirst again. So may we drink deep of that and quench those longings that we try to quench in so many other ways, but not in your words. So guide us now. In your name we pray, amen. The world of sports is an interesting world. And there are some great rivalries in sports. And usually you get a rivalry where you have two either local teams that are going at it. Uh, you can have those in the high school world, rivalries where everybody comes out. You will sometimes have rivalries because of the state location where they are, or there's just maybe somebody said something, one thing, they really ticked off the other team, and before you know it, they're going at it. And so then what we, the sports guys that like to talk on the radio, usually just to hear their own voices, will argue about which team is better, you know, this team or that team. And uh, you can sit there for years and just talk about who's better, you know, like who's the best quarterback, who's the best this, and all these rivalries get talked about. But there is one sure way to settle the score, is to have those two teams play each other. Because whoever wins the game no matter what excuse you use about our best guy was injured or whatever, the rubber meets the road and the winning team is the victor. And they, to the victor goes the spoils and the other team has nothing to say until maybe the next time we play, right? And whoever wins, nothing more needs to be said. You just look at the score. You know, it's one of those things that it's kind of a cocky thing to do when the other team is talking back to you, just point to the scoreboard, you know, and like... Uh, you know, you're, you're young, but we're, we're winning, you know, and points say it all. With that in mind, we're going to be looking at these last two verses, and we're going to see that Jesus is ruling and reigning, and we're going to look at this ruling and reigning, and what, what does that mean, that he rules and reigns, all right? That, well, we have, obviously, if you're going to rule and reign, that means you have to rule and reign over something, and what are all those things that are there? But before we get to that, we're going to handle one more interesting passage of scripture here, and I'm saying that interesting not because we don't really know what to do with it, but just interesting as it can take you off guard as you read it. So let's get the context of this. We're going to start in verse 18 and work our way to verse 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. 
not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. Point number one we got to deal with is in verse 21 is baptism and salvation. It's interesting here as we look at verse 21, it says baptism, which corresponds to this. All right, so now we need to figure out what the this is, what it's talking about. Because as the Bible's being written, words mean things. And the this is referring back to the fact that Peter is saying that a few people were saved from destruction in the days of Noah. And they were rescued by God through water. This is what the buildup in verse 20. He's saying that God's judgment came upon the people. There was the patience time that we, we talked about the last time. Then there was a time of destruction. And that... In the days of Noah, that there were eight people that were brought safely through the water. And now as Peter is writing about these group of people that were brought safely through the water, the Holy Spirit is laying on his mind baptism. Right? So why do we have baptism here? And what does the flood have to do with baptism? Because Peter, again, is reminding us the thought process here. A few people saved by God through, through water now moves him to talk about baptism. And so we see this, and remember, you say, I remember, Pastor Tim, it was two weeks ago you told us that when the Bible makes common sense, we're not to speak, seek any other sense, and you're supposed to look at the plain reading of the text. So in verse 21, baptism was corresponds to this, now saves you. So I expect then, Tim, come October, when we talk about the five solos of the faith, and we go through grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone, we're going to have baptism alone added to that. And so we expect because the clear teaching of the text says baptism now what? Saves you. All right. And so does that mean that we need to rewrite all of our church documents and everything else that are moving on here? Uh, I will argue with you, no. But we need to do a little walk through church history to deal with this issue. Because I'll try to put it as kindly as possible there's a lot of dumb things that happen in church history. I'll just put it that way. Of just sinners and unbelievers trying to handle the word of God and not being at all saved and getting a whole lot of mess from there. So I'm going to give you a little walk through church history. So we're going to start in the, uh, the, the spot of the book of Acts. And so as we walk through the book of Acts here, this is what I want us to play out. So when a, with the New Testament, when someone gets saved... They are baptized. In the New Testament, when someone gets saved, they are baptized. This idea of a saved person that has not been baptized yet is foreign to the teaching of the Bible. All right, someone gets saved, baptized. And it's usually immediately in that context. Um, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, I went the long route. I started in Matthew, and I'm finally getting here. Acts chapter 2, 38. Just listen to this. And now when they heard, they were cut to the heart, and Peter said to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins and the receiving of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's what we see. Peter describing salvation. What is it? Repent and be baptized. All right? Moving on, you look at Acts chapter 8. As we talk about situations that are happening here, um, Philip is uh, dealing with Simon the sorcerer. Remember, Simon the sorcerer sees what Philip is doing by the gift of the Holy Spirit that is given to people. And Simon uh, himself, in verse 13, believed. And after 
uh, being baptized, he continued with Philip, and soon we find out later that Simon was only in it for the power, only in it for the prestige of it all, and Peter warns him, be careful of all of these things, and Simon goes away, does not seem to repent, but no one goes back and said, wait a minute, we baptized him, we shouldn't have, we went too quick to baptize this guy. All right, it was you got saved, and then you were baptized. You were saved, and then you were baptized. This whole idea of salvation and baptism, the Ethiopian eunuch, well, he's, Philip's talking to him, and Philip explains to him through the book of Isaiah salvation, and the Ethiopian eunuch very shortly afterwards goes, what? Where can I be baptized? There's water here, let's be baptized. Well, what, happens in, what happened in church history was this very, very early on in church history, the church is spreading, Paul and the apostles are gone with the closing of the canon in the book of Revelation. The apostles now are off the scene and the church is starting to organize itself. It gets under immense persecution and when you are being killed for your faith, you, the false converts are very low. Like if you're going to follow Jesus and the next day your house could be burned and everything else, you're not having a lot of people just in for the show or because they had really good coffee at the meeting um, coming. If you're going to die you don't show up to the, to the meeting, all right? And so people would be saved, and then they would be baptized, and we would move on, and they would keep going. And it wasn't until we, uh, in church history, where Rome then goes and makes, and I'm going to be very broad here, Rome goes and makes, instead of persecuting the Christians, it becomes the popular thing to be. And so now, if you want to hold a place of power, you need to be Christian. And so everybody starts to becoming Christian, and all of a sudden, before you know it, there's going to be a lot of confusion when... All you need to do is say you're a Christian and you get it to be a place of power. And before you know it, this whole concept of faith and everything else is going to start to get very skewed and very messed up. And then, broad brush here, we're starting to deal with, well, we want to have an external sign that shows that people are saved. We want to have all of these things that can prove that you're saved. And so, well, faith is kind of hard to see an external sign, so let's start getting baptized. And before you know it, being saved by faith alone is removed, and baptism starts to take a predominant point. Instead of baptism being a symbol of the salvation that takes place, it becomes the main thing. And before you know it, from there, we start going, well, we have a very high infant mortality rate. We'd love to make sure that they're saved as well, and so let's bring in this whole infant baptism thing and we what we're going to do is we're just going to start taking random passages of scripture and start fitting them in so we can start baptizing babies and then you get the debate between can we should we be baptizing babies should we not be baptizing babies and whole wars are fought over this and then you get to the debate of how much water is needed for baptism you get a group that literally argues wait a minute we do not believe in infant baptism so they're called anti-baptists and if you're an anti-baptist and you went to war over one of these things the way they killed anti-baptists because you don't believe in sprinkling you believe in immersion we will drown you you know, fooey on you, you really like water, we're going to drown you on this. And the battles rage back and forth. And then you have a group that even comes out and they say, you know what, we believe in full immersion. And you're going to go, have you ever looked at the word immersion? If you immerse something, what are you already? Like, we don't even have to go out of your way to say fully immersed, as if you didn't get that. And then I'm sure all of you Civil War historians at the Battle of Antietam, there was a church that was blown to smithereens during the battle, and they were literally called the Dunker Baptist Church. I mean, they, even in their name, they were like, we're not just, we really like baptism. We're going to be the Dunkers, you know, and you're going, I mean, okay, have we missed something here, folks? And literally, we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We're throwing everything out here. 
And before you know, we come to a passage of scripture here where the early church would associate you got believed in Christ and you were baptized. It's, this was a one event thing. It was not that the baptism saved you. It just was when you got saved, what did you do? You were baptized. And so when you come to a text like this, we could try to jump through hoops and try to say it didn't really mean this. Where Peter's writing this saying, listen, baptism is what saves and it's not because he's saying that faith alone does not save. He's referring to this. This is what happened when someone would say, when were you baptized with that in the early church would come with the idea that you also believed in Jesus Christ and you were saved. If you look at a lot of the early church writings, I would they speak in this way. It's only until we get into some weird jump off stuff where we're trying to do that because here's what we do in America now. So you get saved. All right. But before we're going to baptize you, you're going to need to meet with the pastor to find out if you really are. And we're going to have some long drawn out thing because we're going to have this huge long period of time between your confession and your baptism where you confess with the Lord Jesus. And then we're going to draw out this thing. And so what happens then is we get this drawn out time and that very few people are baptized. And so we have this weird thing that is not found in anywhere in the Bible. People that are saved that have never been baptized. And so we're left It's a very interesting America struggle in the church world, because even when I grew up, they would say, all right, oh, Tim, you're saved. Well, you should think about being baptized. Like, no, that's not biblical. Like you're saved. If you believe, if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised you from the dead. Guess what's next? Baptism. Like that is the first step of obedience. The Bible tells us if we could argue what's first step, was it salvation or whatever? But they get it. All right. It's the next step of obedience. So. So that would technically mean then, if we're following this, if you were a believer in Christ and you've not been baptized, I'll let you do the math. There, you are in disobedience until that happens, all right? So we have a baptism coming up. We can talk about that. <laughs> Saying all of that, Peter, here's, let's look at what the text says. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. But not as a removal of dirt from the body. Here's what Peter goes on to say. He says, baptism now saves, but it's not an outward cleansing of dirt from the body. Notice what Peter also does not say. He says, baptism is not a cleansing of inward dirt either. All right, so this whole idea of that maybe that if I get baptized, there's inward dirt cleaning as well. He's not saying that. He's saying it, uh, it doesn't remove dirt from the body. But then what he says is, baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience. This idea of appeal, appeal carries with the idea of an answer or of an internal desire. When we say someone is making an appeal, it is a desire of the heart. So to summarize what I believe this text is saying here is that the baptismal act is an act of the heart from a soul expressing itself to God. So what we had was we had the confession of the mouth. If you believe in your heart and you confess, and now baptism is the inward is the external response of the inward appeal to God for a good conscience. This baptism act, again, is an act of the heart from the soul expressing itself to God. The saving faith and saving work of Christ, notice what the text goes on to say, is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice here there is no at all indication that this baptism is somehow a salvific work. Because how is the baptism sa saving? Through the work of who? Jesus Christ. Romans 6.4, if you could flip over to Romans 6.4. Paul speaking of this as well. In Romans chapter 6, verse 4.
We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We too may walk in newness of life. What does our baptism represent? For those who have been baptized, our baptism represents that newness of life. That baptism represents and displays the victory over sin and death. That baptism, again, displays the victory over sin and death as we are dead with Christ and we are raised again with him just as Jesus was dead and he was raised. Jesus' death and resurrection is what our baptism symbolizes. And the water in here, just like Peter is saying, the water symbolizes the cleansing of sin and the coming out of the water symbolizes, again, that we've gone from death to life. Now let's think about this for a moment, what baptism symbolizes. It literally symbolizes the judgment of God in the water, just like Noah's day, that judgment of God is the water. But those who are baptized symbolizes we went from death to life. This beautiful thing that is there. And this is why the Christian walk is one that you go, I no longer live that way because I am now dead to those things, but alive to Christ. This is what the baptism, your old self is being buried with Christ and you were raised anew. That's why the Christian walk is not just a one-time repentant act in salvation. It's a continual repenting act. And how do you know that you are repentant? How do you know that this place is because it's a turning away from sin and a turning to Christ? So like to give you an example, if I were to call down to one of my kids when they were younger and I would say, hey, get your hand out of the cookie jar. Oh, dad, I'm so sorry. Uh, I, I don't mean to do that. And all of a sudden we turn on the vacuum again, a repentant heart, the hand does not go back in the cookie jar. A repentant heart would be moving away from the cookie jar not to do that again. But what happens is we become so accustomed to this continual repentance that God called us to, we start to then become people that think grace is cheap. And really my repentance is I'll just stop doing it for today and I'll pick it up again tomorrow. But the Christian walk is literally saying you are dead to those things. They no longer have power over you. Why are you allowing the things that no longer even have power over you to reign over you? Because we're going to find out who is reigning. But we so quickly will excuse ourselves. We so quickly will make it sound as if everybody else is the problem, not ourselves. And so we are so quick to be really able to point out the need for everybody else to repent instead of looking at our own hearts. Because what we're going to see here is in this text that goes on is we're going to see the fruit of the resurrection. Because just as baptism reminds us of the salvific work of Christ by the removal of sin and the righteousness of God placed on us, this is done through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers that have been subjected to him. Christ has been raised from the dead and is at the right hand of God. Let's pause for a second and think that. Because what we see here is the right hand of God is a place of power. We are not just saved from death, but we're also saved from all of the powers of this world. Because notice what has been placed under him. Angels, authority, powers have been subjected to him. Death has been conquered, and as well as even the demonic hosts have been conquered. That word angels does not necessarily mean that it has to be only the, as we would call it, the angels with God. It's talking about all of the powers of the angelic world there as well. That he has power over all of them. Uh, this is again, remember when we went through 1 Peter 3, 18, and 19, we were talking about these spirits in prison. And one of the, I still told you one of the very strong interpretations of this 
would saying that these spirits in prison were the demonic hosts that Christ, after his death and resurrection, comes and proclaims victory that we have won. It is done. There's nothing more you guys can even try. You have tried your best, but you have been destroyed. You've been laid low. All right. You are done. You no longer have the power that you thought you even had at one time. We have won. Because here's something we need to remember. This is something that is very awe-striking when we allow these truths to sink deep into our hearts. We need to remember that redemption on the cross was for the human race. We pause for that and think about that for a second. When the angels rebelled against God, and then God comes and does his atoning work, who was that for? That was for the human race. The demonic powers of this world were kept in their spot. The Bible tells us they've been kept in these spots waiting for their punishment because they're one act of rebellion against God. So that should cause us to pause and remind ourselves how many times we rebel against Almighty God, but because of His grace and mercy, we are not consumed. And we start thinking through this, we start to remember that even fallen angels, what their role in this is can only listen and watch redemption. Yet, we as human beings have been called to go and to proclaim the gospel to a dying world with the full assurance that God is calling people to himself through the proclamation of the gospel. Why? Because his resurrection accomplished salvation. His resurrection did not make a theoretical salvation. It actually accomplished salvation that people will be saved through the power of the gospel. That is why you do not have to go and sit there and say, how can I craft this in such a way that people believe the gospel is the power to save? And what you need to do is you say, am I giving them actually the gospel or some watered down version of health, wealth and prosperity? Am I actually giving them that mankind is a sinner in need of a savior? And through that message is what awakens the heart of the believer to follow after God. And how do we know this is going to happen? What is the stamp that this is going to happen? It's our last point here that Jesus rules and reigns. Jesus, again, is at the right hand of God, the place of power and authority. He gets that spot because of the, his sacrifice of atonement, as we want to call it in the resurrection, the stamp of approval was given and he was raised from the dead. And now he rules and reigns with all authority for all of eternity. Because here's the part we need to make sure we remind ourselves of this. Peter is standing and, well, sitting or standing, and writing to a group of people that are called exiles and sojourners. They are the tiny, scattered remnant. And all of a sudden, they're, without a doubt, you know if you are a scattered remnant in a spot where persecution is coming, you're going to go, does God really have this under control? Are things really, like he said, are going to happen? Peter's reminding this group of scattered people, and they are scattered, and the question is, the kings of the earth are out to get us. But is God for us? Because I look all around, and all I see is that everybody's out to get me. I, I'm being rejected by everybody. And what does Peter start off with? He says to them in 1 Peter 1, he starts talking, saying, you are a scattered group, but you are chosen by God. The world doesn't want you. The world is pushing you aside as irrelevant, not necessary at all. But your, your chosenness is because God has redeemed you. The king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, it said, come at my beloved child. And so when we look at rejection, when we look at the suffering this world has to offer for us, the eyes of faith see through that. 
There are times where that suffering and that persecution, that rejection can be very thick. But the eyes of faith see through that and they see Christ sitting on the throne, high and lifted up. Because when we see Jesus Christ on the throne through the eyes of faith, we're reminded, as Peter reminds us, of the imperishable seed that has been planted by the Spirit in our hearts that is being grown by the Spirit's power to make it through the end. You can face uncertain days. Why? What does the song say? Because he what? He lives. And he lives and he reigns here on earth. Uh, one of my favorite Christmas songs. Now, one of the problems with Christmas songs is it's like, what do you do when it's not Christmas? Can you still sing these? You know, are you only allowed to sing them from Thanksgiving to whatever? But one of the great songs that I really have enjoyed in the way that it is written, it's called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And I'm not going to go into the detail of all the, uh, the integral things behind that, but there's two um, paragraphs or whatever they call stanzas and songs that I want to read. The writer says, and in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. Makes you wonder if you just got done listening to the news. When we, when we hear destruction, we hear these things. Because here's what he goes on to say, for hate is strong. It doesn't take long to look at the world around us and to see the debauchery that's going on all around us and the hatred towards Christianity because Christianity stands as a contrast to the rest of the world and says, this is true. Unapologetically, this is true. And what does the author go on to say? Hate is strong and what does it do? It even mocks a song. It even ridicules a song that there's peace on earth, goodwill to men. And you can almost feel in the way that the song is going on, the dropping head of all of the exiles and all of the sojourners going through this world. But what does the, the author go on to say? But then rang the bells even louder and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. And that can only be penned. Because of what Peter wrote here through the power of the Holy Spirit, that Christ has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and power, and have been subjected to him. God is on the throne. I know that's something we say all the time, but I think we miss it. Because we so quickly think that what's happening now has not ever happened before. I mean, it was ridiculous to hear about all the stuff going on in COVID of like, these are, these are uncertain times or uh, these things have never happened before. Yeah, it never happened to you before. But have you ever read about the Black Death? I mean, come on, people. All right, like plagues come through all the time. Get off your high horse that you think that only good things are supposed to happen to us here in this world. We live in a world of sin and suffering. And there's two things that are inevitable. You will be taxed more. All right, well, just remember that. You're going to get taxed more and you're going to die. All right, and those two things you can take home that will happen. And but yet, what do we do? We become unraveled that all of a sudden your death is confronting you and we run in fear as if we don't realize that God is on his throne. Remember in our Bible study, we've been going through Isaiah chapter 6 and R.C. Sproul, as he was taking us through this, what he said was very impactful at the beginning when Isaiah is about ready to look into the glimpse and see the beauty and holy of God, holiness of God. At the beginning, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And we miss that because we forget that in the year that King Uzziah died, what we have there is an unstable world. When kings die, there's always a question, who's going to take the throne? Are we going to have civil war? Which family is going to rule? Who's, where do I need to go? How do I know we won't be attacked? This is when enemies want to attack. When, when your place is at its weakest, 
But what does Isaiah see? In the moment of uncertainty, he sees God seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train is filling. And what's happening down here on earth? When Isaiah is looking, everything up there is in complete control. Remember when we went through Habakkuk. I'm sure you do because you listen to these all the time. I'm sure you remember each one of them. But remember when we went through Habakkuk? When Habakkuk is saying to God, I see injustice everywhere. When are you going to do something? I'm literally going to stand here until you do something. And God says, I'm going to do something that you never believed. And even if I'm going to tell you, you're not going to believe it. And then Habakkuk goes, no, I don't like that because you're, let me tell you about God. The God I serve is not this, 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 and this. And God says to him, how little you know me. And all of a sudden, Habakkuk gets it. And it's as close as you can hear to this, where you literally hear Habakkuk say this. The Lord is on his throne. Let all the earth be silent. And it's like you could hear a pin drop after that as we're reading through this. Guess what you have to respond when God is on his throne? All of your complaining needs to go where? Keep your mouth shut. It's as close as we don't let our kids say some of the word that you all know I'm thinking about that starts with a shut and ends with another word that is not down. All right, literally, this is about as close as you can get to the word of God saying, knock it off. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but it's time for us to wake up. It is amazing to me. I, I literally, I'm trying to, this week, I spend way too much time on baptism in church history, but every stinking thing, before I'm ready to watch a guy talk about baptism, I hear, or I hear a news report about a politician that says this, this person, if you vote for them, you will die or your life will be miserable. And then the next guy comes up of the other party. If you vote for this person, you will die and your life will be miserable. Not only do we disagree with you, literally, I mean, we will have women out on the streets, right? And you will not have food. Your gas prices are going to be on. Everybody's claiming all these other things. You vote for me. And before you know it, our hope can be put in who's ruling here on earth. But what did Habakkuk and Isaiah see? They just saw right through that and they saw God is in control. Peter is encouraging the believers here. At the end of chapter 3, he's saying to this, You do not need to fear the Roman sword. You do not need to fear the fury of Satan. You belong to the Lord of glory. You belong to him. Because Jesus Christ is the cause of peace in the midst of the storm. Do we really truly believe that? Because here's what happens. And I'm trying to say this to all of us. So when you hear me say church, I'm including myself in the church. All right. We need to wake up because we are living like a bunch of people that are defeated. We're living like a bunch of people that are embarrassed for what the word of God says. I mean, it is crazy to me when we sit here and we hear the things going on when we need to say, listen, the word of God clearly tells us how we are to live. But we have allowed this drudgery, we have allowed the error to become so popular and become so emotionally twisted that we sit there and almost apologetically stand for the truth. It'd be no different than this. All right, Viking fans, you lost to the Eagles. All right, the Eagles are better than you this year. I don't have to apologize for that. Because the Eagles destroyed the Vikings. Uh, like, all right, give me your excuse. What happened? They thrashed you. And I can boldly proclaim the Eagles are better than the Vikings this year. And I can prove it to you. And I'll prove it to you again. Look at the scoreboard, right? How many touchdowns did your team score? How many touchdowns did my team score? And you see the boldness that I'm able to proclaim that with? Why? Because my team won. You following that? 
But yet when it comes to Christianity, we would say it like this. Well, I, I don't want to upset your feelings here. I, I understand maybe the Vikings, you know, they just didn't travel well. They were a little sick that day. You know, maybe the food, they can't handle the cheesesteaks, a little too greasy or something like that. And we apologize for it. Or we go to the other end that we hear this. God's word offends and so should we. And you're like, no, 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 no. You don't need to be offensive. The word of God is offensive enough. Just give them the word of God. You don't need to be the one with the prickers going like this. You need to proclaim the word of God truthfully and stand behind the boldness of the message. You don't need to bring any more oomph to the message that the message already has the power to awaken blind eyes to the need of the gospel. But what we can do is we can get so bought up in so many of these other goofy things that we can start to question what's going to happen. And so we start going, but Tim, you know, uh, what happens when my faith may fail? I would just respond to you, Christ will hold you fast. What if the tempter's going to prevail over me? I would respond to Christ will hold you fast. And what if my soul is lost? I go, he'll hold you fast. Why? Because we don't have a fictitious God. We have a God who rules and reigns on the earth. And it's time for us to wake up, to go into the highways and the byways and proclaim the truth. I mean, because my question is in front of us. If he can save eight people through a destructive, world-altering, changing world, if he can save them through a little tiny boat with a bunch of animals, if he can save them, crying out loud, church, you think he can save you too? And guess what? If you were down at camp with us, to live is Christ, and guess what death is? Gain. So you didn't give up anything. So boldly proclaim the truth. One of my favorite quotes as a missionary, we'll end with this. One of my favorite quotes as a missionary who, who was going to go on his way off to a cannibal tribe. And cannibals are people that, when they say it's going to cost you an arm and a leg, they really mean it. And so he was about ready to go to this cannibal tribe, and a guy comes up to him and goes, you might be eaten alive if you go. And I love his response to this man who said that. He said, well, listen here. I'm either going to be eaten by cannibals there, but you're going to die and be eaten by worms here. So whether cannibals or worms, you pick. Because we're all going to the same place. I'm going to go proclaiming the, the goodness of God is what he called me to. Right? You're all going to die. The sooner you die, the less ripped off you get with, with taxes and gas anyway, right? So boldly proclaim the truth. Because for the believer, again, remember this. For the believer, when we live in such a way that we boldly proclaim for me to live as Christ, death is not feared at all. Death is gain. So here's what Peter is leaving with them. He's reminding them, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have hope. He is on the throne, the right hand of God. And everything, angels, authorities, and, and power have been subjected to him. Those are the little getty up in our steps as believers as we read these things to remember them. Because we all say king of kings and lord of lords, but do you actually understand what you've just proclaimed? Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, Help us as we are about ready to sing a song of reminding us that you will keep us to the end. May we glory in the fact that it's not our own selves that keep us, that it is you that does. Why? Because you are on the throne. You have been given power over all things. 
So, dear Heavenly Father, may our faith grow and may we be strengthened that we sing these songs. We ask these things in your Son's name we pray. Amen. You could stand with us as we sing. <laughs>